Welcome to Poetry Lectures, featuring talks by poets, scholars, and educators, presented by PoetryFoundation.org. In this program, we hear a conversation among three Native American poets, Allison Hedge Koch, Linda Hogan, and Sherwin Bitsui. Allison Hedge Koch grew up listening to her father's traditional stories as she moved from Texas to North Carolina to Canada and the Great Plains. She is the author of several collections of poetry and the memoir, Rock, Ghost, Willow, Deer. She has worked as a mentor with Native Americans and at-risk youth and is currently a professor of poetry and writing at the University of Nebraska, Kearney. Linda Hogan is a prolific poet, novelist, and essayist. Her work is imbued with an indigenous sense of history and place while it explores environmental, feminist, and spiritual themes. A former professor at the University of Colorado, she is currently the Chickasaw Nation's writer-in-residence. She lives in Oklahoma where she researches and writes about Chickasaw history, mythology, and ways of life. Sherwin Bitsui grew up on the Navajo Reservation in Arizona. He speaks Dine, the Navajo language, and participates in ceremonial activities. His poetry has a sense of the surreal, combining images of contemporary urban culture with native ritual and myth. This conversation was recorded in March 2012 in Chicago. It begins with Allison Hedge Koch, who serves as moderator. Let's just begin by speaking to ascetics that you might feel are particularly Native, and then if we could follow up with maybe some influences, different poets that spoke to you from those decades that uh, sort of complicated the way that people uh, began to look at uh, poetry from Native America and took it from a historical sense into the now. So. If you could begin maybe by just speaking to an ascetic that you feel is profoundly Native, and I'll open up with you, Linda. Well, first of all, I think it's important to mention that we are three generations, three different generations of Native writers, and um, I get to be the older person, uh, get to be, have to be. (laughs) But I think the, um, the things that carried over that I've noticed and that I've thought a great deal about is, first of all, the ceremonial uh, ceremonials, which in a way, uh, which I have to say, are a form of literature and prayer combined. And they are uh, incantatory sometimes and sometimes not. Sometimes they're mythical. Sometimes they are uh, storytelling. But ceremonial literature Uh, was actually my first influence and my first introduction to Native poetry. And so I found that that's something that has continued and that um, we have all been influenced um, and looked or heard it through other Native writers and carried on certain traditions within that. But... um, there were a lot of things happening with native writers in not only in the you know 1900s but in the 1800s so we have literatures that go way back and go back much further even than that birch bark uh writing and uh of course our writing was mostly um because of the environment that the southeastern tribes lived in most of the things that we did that would have been considered writing have decayed and, you know, long hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So we don't have a tradition that we can look at and say this is our writing, but we do have certain 
uh, symbologies that that are writing and they do tell stories and so they are also linked with astronomy. It's very complex. So when people think, oh, this is non-Indian people, think oh, primitive writers, you know, primitive work from early times, it's like when they say songs have uh, meaningless vocables that, you know, there's, we actually have a very complex and systematic form of literature carrying over from the 1900s. And Sherwin, um, maybe aesthetic value from the 20th century, anything that uh, speaks to you now from that era that you can recall for us? I think what I read and hear the poetry from the, the 20th century, I immediately feel that the poets are speaking to a type of aftermath. Like there's a there's a yearning for story and there's this need to give voice to oppression, colonialism, and to recreate the world as whole again. There seems to be this desire and this push to make sense of the atrocities that occurred the century before and that are occurring right now. So I really aesthetically the power of all of these, all of my forebearers resonates still today, and we just continue that voice. And I also think about the continuation of a native aesthetic and, and what does it mean in my generation, what does it mean to me as I'm, I'm writing primarily in the 21st century. So um, I think, there, like Linda said, there is a continuation of the song and the chanting, but also there is a real urgency in, in the 20th century work, and there still is now, but I think the urgency is political and very activist. I really agree with that. Um, I didn't mean to omit the forces of colonization and that how... I think non-Indian people in America rarely think of history, and I think of history daily. It's part of my life. Mm -hmm. And so our work today is a continuation of, um, I mean, there is no post-colonial literature in my mind because we're still not post-colonial, and we're still fighting colonization. But um, many of the writers in that time period gave up on being native and wrote poems about I would take my chair instead of a tree stump and, you know, uh, which is sadly a case that, uh, you know, many people took that position and then others took the other side that mm-hmm. that you're talking about, which is how do we fight this uh, thing that's happening to us. It's really interesting, too, because um, during the 1900s, uh, people were at the beginning of the 1900s, still getting used to reservation or just going to reservation. And um, the 70 or so years before that where people were being placed on reservations uh, was a, a period of internment and um, sort of misery, uh, very complicated dark ages in the United States and Canada. And some of the poets that really spoke to me when I was a child, uh, for instance, uh, Maurice Kenny, James Welch, uh, poets that were already breaking through boundaries, moved me when I was 
very young to to look at some of the things that I still look at today. Uh, there's one poem by James Welch, and I'm not sure. I think Sherwin might also have an influence with Welch. Uh, but Harlem Montana, are you familiar with that one? I just saw it in the. Book, Did you just yeah. see it, <laughs> Linda? Do you remember I, Harlem I remember Montana? Do you yes, that? I do. And and being of James Welch's generation, yeah. um, you know, of course, I knew him, and we hung out together. Oh, sure, yeah, <laughs> he's a wonderful guy, a really wonderful. It was guy. really the best. I was going to best human. Hopefully, just uh, pull a couple of lines here. And the reason it really spoke to me too about this era is because people were starting to leave the reservation. So. 1968, there were people who were moving into cities. There was a big push in the mid-50s and early 60s to relocate people and get them off of the reservation. So first there's a push to put people on the reservation, and there's a push to put them in cities and get them off the reservation almost just as soon. So uh, he composed this poem, Harlem, Montana, just off the reservation. I'm just going to read the opening lines here. We need no runners here. Booze is law, and all the Indians drink in the best tavern. Money is free if you're poor enough, disgusted, busted. Whites are running. Uh, so looking at the, the onset of the poem, we get this feel of change. We get this feel of the opening line, we knew no runners here, which is kind of interesting because there's this long tradition of runners carrying messages uh, which, of course, were written word back in the day, whether they were on deer hide or birch bark or whatever the uh, parchment used at the time. So there's an indication there of runners giving messages, even oral message. So I thought it's really interesting in the poem. Um, so in the 60s, you know, there's this, there's this onset of, of uh, moving forward or moving away from and looking at things that were uh, not necessarily transient at the time. But we're already an affect, of course, uh, alcohol and um, misery, <laughs> already an affect here. And some of those early poems, I thought, really captured that uh, movement. Uh, Linda, as you say, you were a colleague of James's. Do you want to speak to that a little bit, possibly? Of course, there was a Government Relocation Act in the 1950s, which is when um, my uncle moved to Denver and began uh, the White Buffalo Council there, and it was to help people coming into Denver from different reservations who were basically dropped off into cities and then left on their own to try to find food, clothing, houses, and, you know, places to live, apartments or whatever. So he started an organization which was there to help people coming in in the 50s. So... I mean, I was thinking as you were talking about so many things, the runners, the, the Pueblo revolt was carried out by runners and sent the Spanish back, you know, to Mexico for 12 years. But the poem that you began, I was, I had never thought about the real runners were the whites. They had to run away from the, from the, the Indian people coming. <laughs> yeah, we're coming now. The but there's, some, there's, there's humor there that I had not really thought about before in that line. And, and that money is free. So, you know, <laughs> look out. We're going to take your money. <laughs> and actually, we are taking their money. <laughs> Casinos. <laughs> Sherwin, did you want to... Maybe go a little further into Yeah, um, I'm reminded of, uh, I mean, from that generation, Simon Ortiz, Akamo poet, is, is a major uh, figure and a major voice. 
And um, I really discovered, I had to re, I almost had to rediscover native poetry in the literary form um, later on in life. It, it wasn't something, because I grew up on the reservation and the nearest library was in a town 40 miles from my community. And, and, and to this day, I haven't been in there, but I can see it. it's a small little building. So really, access to books was um, very, very limited, if anything. I mean, the, the books that we did get were, were the checkout stand books, like the, the sure. detective stories and stuff. So um, my whole exposure to Native poetry came until way later. And when I was in school and growing up, going to school, uh, you know, taking the bus ride out and then going to school in Holbrook, uh, Arizona, um, I, I, I noticed that there wasn't any Native poetry or Native literature being taught in the English classes. And the majority of students there were Navajo. So there was almost this, um, I guess, uh, silence. And, and when I first uh, found Native poetry, it was in a bookstore in uh, Flagstaff, Arizona. And I remember seeing Ophelia Zapata's book. And then um, I pulled it and I, and I looked at its Ocean Power and Suntrack series. University of Arizona Press, and to pick up the book and to look on the back and to see the pic her picture on there was pretty revolutionary for me because then it was like oh then I then I started looking around the little bookstore and I, I found Lucy Tabahanzo's book and then also um, Simon Ortiz and um, I think Simon Ortiz in, in from Sand Creek really gives a voice to this this idea of mm -hmm. speaking mm -hmm. back into history and speaking forward. And really naming the, the the new space that they occupied, and really really charging it with some real um, power. And this is um, from Sand Creek. They crossed country that will lay beyond memory. Their cells would no longer bother to remember. Memory was not to be trusted. They had plans, fortuitous for those who had designs. They had plans that they could have matched the land like those who had searched the plains and tied themselves to stars, insects, generations and generations, instinct for millennia. When they didn't, starlight fractured became unpredictable. Aimlessly, they crossed memory. And there's that whole notion of aimlessly crossing memory, and I think all of us as indigenous poets, we, we have this connection to this place that our ancestors held and it's continuous it, it, it was never broken so we live in this land and and we're giving voice to something that is inherently ours well in a way we are our ancestors mm -hmm. right? you know it's like when we talk about we came from mississippi to oklahoma we say we came we don't say they came it's as if the people, the history is still living. It's still with us all the time. And I think of a poem by uh, Scott Mamaday that um, I had on, he sent it to me and uh, I had it up for a while and it was, it was heartbreaking. It was about the killing of the ponies and about um, uh, Satanka and the, the uh, killing of the ponies that, you know, there were, so many of the horses that was easy to keep native people in one place if you could kill all the horses. So, 
General Miles, I think it was, killed 21,000 horses, and Custer and his men killed uh, almost that much, maybe more. And um, it was about how he could, he bit himself out of his uh, cuffs, his rope cuffs, when he heard the horses screaming, when he heard their ponies screaming. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I mean, I think that the writers in that particular generation, I know we're talking really about 1900s. But the writers in, the, in his generation, you know, are looking at back only a century ago mm -hmm. at events that happened and making them present right. and still breaking our hearts. Yeah. And uh, Mama Day was doing film at the time, too, in the 1900s. So there's some great film evidence uh, with poetry, really beautiful work. I was thinking, too, when you brought up uh, Ortiz and you were talking about Pueblo and... Uh, it brought to mind a poem that I had uh, brought in an excerpt from, and it's a poem from Leslie Marmon Silko, who is an influence on me, uh, definitely an influence on me. And this poem is called To'osh. It's a Laguna Coyote story. So it does have this essence of oratory and uh, sort of placement or how things work. Uh, there's a ceremonial element to it, and it's dedicated to Simon Ortiz. It was written in 1973, almost in a letter to, to him. Uh, so I'll just read a few lines from that. And it happened to him at Laguna in Chinle. And Luca Chukai, too, because Coyote got too smart for his own good. But the Navajos say he won a contest once. It was to see who could sleep out in a snowstorm the longest. And Coyote waited until Chipmunk, Badger, and Skunk were all curled up under the snow. So there's this lovely uh, sort of incantation of, of story from maybe from time ago, but why not from this moment as well. Uh, I always feel that there's a certain uh, really nice resonance of uh, lyric in Native oratory that's not necessarily present in non-Native oratory, at least in non-Native meaning non-tribal. So I find that for a lot of populations, uh, the poetics that come, uh, when you move into epic poetries, the narrative is much more prosaic and not so lyric. But if you look back at tribal peoples from around the world, there's a lyric sense to the narrative, and one doesn't preclude the other. Uh, and I find that that's present in this as well. There's a sense of the epic. There's a sense of something that predates us in this time, if, if you can look at that as something that's real, and yet carries on through us so we can speak to it. And it does have the presence of song as well, which Linda began with. Linda, did you want to talk a little bit more about that? Or? Well, as you were, you were talking, I was thinking about some of the, um, we had a woman, Teyada, who traveled around the country and was very famous for uh, talking, telling stories, carrying on different kinds of traditions, but she incorporated many. It wasn't just Chickasaw. And, um, you know, it, I was thinking also while you were talking about in the 70s when you were reading, being influenced by all of these poets, I was came from a completely different background, and we didn't have books. And I went to school as an older person and... Um, I didn't grow up with an education, so I didn't know that there were native writers. 
I didn't discover that there were Native writers until much later in my life. So I thought, I'm going to write down everything that everybody says because I'm going to be the only person that does this, you mm -hmm. know. Um, so I didn't know. I didn't know that I had people that were a little older than myself, Scott, uh, Mama Day, and, and uh, people that were writing and had been writing. I thought the only thing there was was the really old literature. And it's funny that the second thing you picked also had a sense of humor. You know, coyotes waiting for them to go to sleep and under the snow so he can eat them, of course. <laughs> but, you know, looking back on the traditions, there was uh, Gertrude Simon Bonin's uh, Zikala Saw, who was uh, Lakota, and uh, she was a mixed-blood person. And she was a poet, and she started a newspaper with Carlos Montezuma and Wasaha, which is was it still in in print not that long ago. And um, they were educating Native people all over the country about poetry. Alexander Posey, who was a Creek poet back in the 1800s, who was writing books, editing a newspaper. I mean, we have. Uh, really a long tradition that we come from of writers. And, and I have looked at some 18th uh, century, I mean, 1800s mm -hmm. writers of the Southeast. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, it's as if it didn't matter. It's as if that there was suddenly a, by the majority uh, literary world, there was suddenly a discovery of Native writers in the, around the 70s. Mm -hmm. And we used to say every 20 years they rediscover Native writers. And they do. Every 20 years or so they rediscover us and we are, you know, recognized again for a while and then it kind of drops out. You know, someone wins a major award and they say, oh, there are Native writers. And then after a while it kind of drifts away. And so we have to be constant in our work and in our hope that our the people that are working with us as our publishers and everything that they're still keeping us in the in the eye of the public or in the ear of the public um, because the ear is also so important. Uh, Sherwin, do you want to speak to maybe lyric nature, um, perhaps imagery and poetry that you see from the uh, 20th century? Um, certainly. I, th I It's hard to really just say that we write the way we do because of of who we are but um something i don't know what exactly it is maybe the relationship to the land but i do do a lot of work in the schools and i do know that um, many times when i'm working with with kids and students na native students navajo students in particular um, because that's where I work. Um, there seems to be real attention attention to the images and the the movement of the, the the images in in the imagination, and it seems to be a natural thing, and that's rather dangerous to to say because then somebody could say, "Oh, all you natives do this," but I think there is a real relationship to story, and I think Linda, you brought this up at the beginning, and and this foundation from which all our stories have come from are somewhat are, are stories that speak to the cosmos and, and to the spirit and, and to the the rootedness of being from this place, from this land, from this landscape. Well, maybe you could expand on, yeah. I wanted to ask you a question about what you were saying, which was movement of the imagination. Yeah. 
because I find that, at least in my sense, with that rootedness, we need less imagination because the image is always with us. So we don't need to make things up. Our lives themselves are so luminous and so um, so ancient and long here on this land. Yeah, and then also the the freedom to imagine. And I think some of us come from such hardship that the imagination takes on a, a different kind of life. Coping. And it might be a way of coping. It may be a way of filling the void with story and, and making it so loud and impossible to ignore. I think I have a selection here from Going Home by Maurice Kenny, who was born in the 20s, is still publishing. Uh, Maurice Kenny, of course, is a, a really brilliant Mohawk poet. He's been teaching at Buffalo for many years. Uh, and he does speak to that in this poem, Going Home. Cold graves under willows and pine, home from Brooklyn to the reservation that was not home to songs I could not sing, to dances I could not dance, from Brooklyn bars and ghetto rats to steaming horses stomping frozen earth, barns and privies lost in blizzards, home to nation, Mohawk, to faces I did not know. So there's this this sense of moving back and forth and this sense of longing or lament maybe, a sense of uh, void, as you mentioned, that I think uh, he's speaking directly to uh, and trying to maybe give us a sense of what that is for him moving back and forth. So it actually uh, speaks both to what Linda's speaking about and in a way to what you're speaking about as well and sort of brings both of those together. So the actuality is enough image and yet there's a longingness uh, for something that's missing uh, maybe in a more modern sense. Well, and the sense of loss in that is so great. It's painful. Um, thinking about being born in the 1920s, which was so early, and I'm thinking that my grandparents uh, were alive and aware of the massacre at Wounded Knee. And um, because I come from an older generation and they come from an even older generation than I do, um, you know, and him being not that far removed, really, physically or emotionally from the reservation, but having already lost the ability to know his dances, know his songs. And, you know, one of the things that's so significant and that I'm working on now and I feel like we need to is um, think about not just the past, but carrying that past into the future so that no one ever has to go through that experience of being so broken off and fragmented again. I think that brings us very nicely into Diane Burns' work. Um, Burns uh, died a few years ago. She was very well known in New York, um, particularly as a orator or oral literature poet, uh, performance poet, if you will. Um, and her loss was significant to people in poetry in New York, but she wasn't really known outside of the Native community. Except for when she was young, she was well-known. When she known. was young, she was yes. well-known. Um, there's a few lines of her first and only book of poetry, which is 
writing the One-Eyed Ford, which we all know from 49er songs. <laughs> and a lot of her, uh, her, a lot of her lyric poetry came from uh, the impetus or gist of it was a 49er. And then she'd break up from the lines that existed and open it up and create a po- poem there. And it says, Our people slid open the badger to see tomorrow's in its blood. Now look at me and see what our tomorrows hold. So there's a sense of that prophecy is available in the DNA, in the marrow, in the blood. So and we come from this, we move to this, and there's a sense of continuum in her work that I find really brilliant and interesting. Um, and again, that was from 81. Um, would either of you like to speak to maybe the performance aspect of poetry or from a Native sense or Native community poets who you feel have been really great at bringing that sense of oratory as far as entertainment goes for the people, but also historical information. Do either of you have a poet that might do that very well? You, I've seen Lucy Topohanzo, uh read and, and perform, and her presentation always involves song. So sometimes she'll break into a song, uh, and, and these will not be necessarily ceremonial songs. But a lot of them um, mimic, I guess, they, they sound a lot like um, social songs and and also a song for her grandchild. And um, there's something about the, the notion of making the connection between the tradition that isn't always, um, it's, it doesn't seem to be irrelevant um, to to the larger world that we have this old tradition, we have this continuous poetic tradition, and that they do exist in songs. So when I've seen her perform, that comes out, that that comes forth. Like I always think about my own experience and, and where I learned poetry is really from the way my grandfather would even speak at times and that he was very poetic and he never spoke English. But the way he would create images in music with with words was really something that I saw as poetry. I, I heard it as poetry because he would give me that same feeling that I would get from uh, somebody reading a poem in, in a public space. Well, your language also is very different than English and much more complex and has many more words. It would uh, You'd need an OED-type dictionary (laughs) (laughs) and many different meanings to the words and everything but I was I had my new book is a performance poem and um, so I'm a little shy about doing it myself uh, so there's some other people that may but our readings in a way are performances and those of us who have courage can and do sing, and some of us may sing, but we don't want to do it in that particular context or anything. But um, I think that we do perform uh, every time we stand up on a stage to give mm-hmm. a reading, or every time we we read our own work. You know, we're doing that, and we're carrying on a tradition uh, that's you know like the speaking of the grandfathers and the speaking of the people before the grandfathers. We are taking that past and bringing it into the present. And, and of course, we have Joy Harjo, uh, who has uh, spent a career of uh, teaching herself not, not just the poetry that she came to at a very early age in life, but different music. She would play clarinet as a child and, 
as an adult, uh, later on decided she wanted to move into saxophone and began to ask questions of various musicians and train herself to play sax, uh, put together different bands, uh, different uh, musicians she's worked with, and several different uh, engagements over a period of time. Um, she was also a very early influence of mine, one of the first visiting writers that we had when I was a student at IAIA, Institute of American Indian Arts, um, and uh, her poem, Eagle Poem, from In Mad Love and War, uh, came out, I believe, in about 1991 when I entered IAIA, and she came through uh, with, the, with the book. And this is a little bit of Eagle Poem. To pray you open your whole self to the sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you, and know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know except in moments steadily growing, and in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. And even in the poem, we get this whole sense of the eagle beginning to move before we even address him or her. Uh, we have this sense of motion, we have this sense of openness and sky and everything heavenly body that's above us there. So we move into a different space or a counter space from our own space. And of course, when she's performing, um, she tends to engage both in a sound effect, uh, visually on the stage, she takes on a characterization of herself as a great performer would do, and moves into a different level of being. Um, so the enactment of that, I think, is also very close to some traditional forms of performance, uh, which I have really appreciated, as, and especially as a younger poet. And I don't know if she was an influence for either of you um, during those years when she was starting out publishing, I think, in the 70s, and then moving on. And of course, Linda, you're her senior. So, uh, But is it possible for someone to be influenced as well by someone who's younger? Yes, of course. Everyone is an influence for me. I go to the panels, at, you know, the poetry panels. I hear poets read. And of course, that influences my poetry, what they say, what they... Everything is an influence. The world... Um, I'm an environmental writer, so the world influences it. The past history, I mean, we're talking about the 1800s or the 1900s, but we've gotten a little away from that. But that past history is an influence. But what doesn't go into your poetry? I mean, what isn't there in the world? Everything is there. There's even dark matter there's no empty space. That's right. Yeah, I'm with you there, Sherwin. Yeah, and definitely joy, uh, an influence on my work. Um, but again, you know, I, I go back to this time. And when I started um, writing poetry and reading poetry was towards the end of the uh, the 20th century, the, the century we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So at the time, the, the entrance into Native poetry for me um, personally was an Sherman Alexie. Oh, yeah. Definitely. And um, I think for my generation, he is a major figure because he was um, writing about, and for somebody like myself who comes, who grew up on the reservation all his life, mm -hmm. for him to um, give, to, to name that space and to write from a reservation space was really, really important. That he wasn't relocated, that it wasn't about the relocation experience or 
Um, but but it was it was happening in our time that he would talk. He would write about basketball players or um, you know uh, res um, border towns and and the, the border town bars and all of these things and, and the forty nine songs and all of these things that um, we grew up with. So when when um, I came of age, it was certainly Sherman who um, and and then I read his you know his first book and he had. He dedicated it to Joy Harjo yeah. and Simon Ortiz yeah. and I think Adrian Lewis. Yeah. So that was my entryway. And again, I, then I found all of you, you know, Linda and Allison, all through this. And it was just a wonderful blossoming of story. The more I reached out, the more your voices came toward uh, me. And from from that space is, is how I entered into this new century with all these words and I carry them with me today. Do you have some of Sherman's you'd like to? Uh, yeah, I'd like to just read maybe the beginning of um, The Summer of Black Widows, which came out in 1990, let me see, 96 it says. The Summer of Black Widows. The spiders appeared suddenly after that rainstorm. Some people still insist the spiders fell with the rain, while others believe the spiders grew from the damp soil like weeds with eight thin roots. The elders knew the spiders carried stories in their stomachs. We tucked our pants into our boots when we walked through fields of follow stories. An Indian girl opened the closet door and a story fell into her hair. We lived in the shadow of a story trapped in the ceiling lamp. The husk of a story museumed on the windowsill. Before sleep, we shook our blankets and stories fell to the floor. A story floated in a glass of water left on the kitchen table. We opened doors slowly and listened for stories. The stories rose on hind legs and offered their red bellies to the most beautiful Indians. I love that. Beautiful. I think, too, that Sherman was name-checking people would stop by programs that he was also in. And I'm going to follow up by name-checking Linda Hogan because she was one of the other writers that came through when I was first at IA. Uh, so it's kind of interesting because we've all come uh, to poetry uh, in our own unique ways of, of getting there, and our own poetic maybe deeply rooted in our families, our lineage, our landscape. Mm, but there's this viable force around us of other Native poets uh, carrying their lineages in, in as well. And I think uh, they're mutually responding to one another. There's conversations there. Even though we're all from different nations. Of course. Completely different traditions, histories, and stories. Exactly. And language. And language. Languages and astronomies and you name it. And Linda, when she came through... Uh, had just uh, published Mean Spirit, and we were reading it in class, a brilliant novel. I still love it. And um, some of her poetry included the Book of Medicines, Coffee House Press, and uh, this early poem that I really loved, uh, Breaking. I'm just going to give a few lines from it, Linda. Pardon me if I don't have a, a, a deep enough reflection beforehand. It's a beautiful piece, Breaking. Water grew between two lands that once were one. That was the first breaking, and the stories in each grain of sand, older than we are, come apart, not even a trace of the first ones, 
no jawbone turning over, and the great salt of blood and brine. So a really beautiful piece, and uh, there's a lot of um, sort of intonation with the body in your work that I've always been really interested in. Uh, it's probably not the time and place for it in this particular interview, uh, but maybe you could speak loosely to uh, how you feel in Native poetry in general. Uh, the aspect of embodiment um, might be reflected in the poetics. Well, I think that as we... When we began, this is a little bit of a circle. We were talking about wholeness. And I think the idea of wholeness includes uh, being solidly in the body. And poetry does not exist only in the mind. Poetry exists in the whole self. And so I don't think a poet is fully engaged unless they are uh, able to reach into that space where they have some kind of embodiment. So, yes, I do uh, work with the body being in, I mean, I think, well, what, what would my feet write if they were writing? Or what would my heart say? Or what would my my legs say? You know, like, why does it always have to think, people think with the mind? Who thinks the mind lives in the head? Where did that idea come from? Where does the mind really live? And so then you think, where does the poem really come from? I mean, it's a magical event. But um, thinking about being an environmental poet, uh, you know, uh, being a native poet, being an activist poet, being all those other things I just keep doing, um, you know, I'm deeply rooted with the earth and... Uh, you know, the poems are like part of a forest. There's always this aspect of restoring, of reconnecting, remaking oneself through with words and with language. For personally, for me, um, indana um, thought and language and being, there is this aspect that we're always reharmonizing ourselves and reconnecting ourselves to our place. So the yeah, poetry has that within it, it's not a disembodied thing mm -hmm. it's a very much it's an embodied experience yeah and uh, there are a lot of poetic forms that are particularly indigenous um several poets doing uh, uh an encoding if you will of poetics so that the form is very much uh, representative of indigeneity depending on the tribe and depending on the cosmogony I noticed you have some uh, James Thomas Stevens over there, and I know he's a poet that is uh, using a lot of different forms that come from, are influenced by rowing songs and working songs, and his poetic uh, carries that sense of native form. Would you like to read a little of James to close? Okay, I'll read a little section from Tokinish, and um, it starts, To walk the periphery of islands as if knowing the border of body, to mold the well-muscled curve of your back, mottled of river weeds hanging red on the scarp, water run down river rock, the comb beneath your arm, skin shining stone as the sun settles into its own dumb orthodoxy. Beautiful. Thank you. I'm just thinking about the poem you read, and I'm not here in this in this 
contained space. I'm in a world thinking about rowing songs, and that's the power of poetry, really. It takes you back to the rowing songs and the chants and the announcing your nation when you row and come over the horizon in your canoe. Exactly. I'm just thankful that there were voices in in that time that are um, informing the present and thankful to every one of those poets speaking from this new generation of of poets. I'm really honored that they spoke. I'm really honored to work with both of you. Uh, Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. So Linda Hogan, Chickasaw poet, uh, Sherwin Bitsui, Diné poet, thank you very much. That was Allison Hedge Coke speaking with Linda Hogan and Sherwin Bitsui. The conversation was recorded at the Poetry Foundation in Chicago on March 2, 2012. The program was part of International Poets in Conversation, sponsored by the Harriet Monroe Poetry Institute. Sherwin Bitsui has written two books of poetry. Shapeshift was published in 2003 and Flood Song in 2009. Allison Hedge Coke's poetry collections include Dog Road Woman, Off-Season City Pipe, and Blood Run. She is also the editor of numerous anthologies. Linda Hogan's recent works include the poetry collection Rounding the Human Corners and a novel People of the Whale. You can read more about these poets and some of their work at poetryfoundation.org. Also at the Poetry Foundation website, you'll find articles by and about poets, the Harriet blog about poetry, an online archive of more than 10,000 poems, the Poetry Learning Lab, the complete back issues of Poetry Magazine, and other audio programs to download. I'm Ed Herman. Thanks for listening to Poetry Lectures from poetryfoundation.org.